My name is Ken. I'm an outstanding compulsive overeater. I've always called myself an overachiever with a fork. That's what I did best. I'm a 300-pound man. I came in here over 300 pounds. I don't know the exact number. I only got a normal scales, but the uh, it hit 299 pretty hard. Just to show you who I was and what happened. And uh, whenever that would happen, I'd go to a doctor. I took pills for over 20 years, amphetamines, from when I was a teenager. I finally came out here. I went to a uh, doctor who said I had a hepatic liver, put me in the hospital for a week, asked me if I'm taking any medication. I lied and said no, because uh, amphetamines was not medication. It was just helping me to stop eating and also getting up to wash my car at 2 in the morning. But, but I never admitted that that was medicine. And uh, so I stopped taking them. I went home. I got better. My liver healed. And I went back to taking pills. It's crazy. I took shots, the female hormone shots. I went to a uh, therapist when I lived in the East. I went to a hypnotherapist out here. And my weight always went down when I started something and up. And down and up. And I always was angry at the fact that I couldn't fix my body and I didn't realize I did not have a problem with my body. I don't think any of you have a problem with yours. The problem is up here between the ears. This is where the disease lives. It used to tell me what to do. I used to listen. I used to go and do it. I remember I was, when I was a little kid, I remember drinking gravy out of a bowl with a straw. I, I migrated to anything that tasted good. I carried food in my clothing, in my car, and I had food stuff of some sort in my office, usually in a bag because it's easy to pull out with my hand, eat, and put it back. And that's where I lived my life, over 300 pounds. Uh, finding this place was an accident. I now call it a miracle of uh, God's handiwork. But I went to a business meeting in San Francisco in 1978 in February. I walked in, I saw a man I hadn't seen in 10 years. His name was Stan. We used to be binge buddies in New York. He was very heavy as well. We used to go out and have lunches in New York City between our uh, business meetings. And he had a normal body, a smile on his face. And I said, what happened? And he said, uh, I found a wonderful place called Overeaters Anonymous. You have to uh, go to find, it'll change your life. And uh, he said, look it up in the white pages. You'll find it anywhere, in anywhere you go in the white pages. That was a meeting, that was uh, God's will that I met him that day. I hadn't seen him for over 10 years. I haven't now seen him for over 35. But we met in that 15 minute time. He told me about Overeaters Anonymous. I went home, I immediately looked in the white pages Wrote down Overeaters Anonymous phone number, put it in my wallet, and forgot it. That's what I used to do. Hurry up, rush, and forget it. <laughs> do it tomorrow. Catch up to it. When I was cleaning up my wallet in May, three months later, I found the number. So I figured I'd call this, I'd get past it so I could find the magic diet again. I was always looking for the magic diet. I called the number, and again, God was working in my life. I got a recording instead of a person. I think I would have hung up on a person, especially if a woman. I wasn't going to talk about my weight. I got a recording. There was a meeting in Van Nuys. I was told to uh, go to that meeting at 7.30 that night. I lied to my wife. I told her I was going out to buy clothing. I knew she would never go with me to buy clothing. It was not a happy experience. And I went to that meeting at 7.30, walked in, and being a compulsive know-it-all, 
I was annoyed by the fact I didn't understand. There was no scale, there was no doctor, there was no nurse, there were nothing being given out to take. Just small pieces of paper at the time that uh, were called a a gray sheet. And on the gray sheet was uh, three meals during the day and you'd have an option what to eat in those three meals and then you'd eat nothing in between. So I looked at this and I said, I'm going to live like this. And I found at the meeting people talking about their feelings and about things that I felt in my own life but never understood to talk out loud to someone else about. I also found out you're supposed to get a sponsor, somebody who will answer your questions, show you how to start, how to move forward. I couldn't do that on the first meeting. I'd have to go home and think about that. And uh, in Los Angeles, we're all very fortunate. We could go to a meeting the next day. We can go the same night. They're, they're all over. But my head said, no, you went on Wednesday night in Van Nuys. You'll have to wait till next Wednesday to go to a meeting. So I waited a week. I went back to the meeting and I figured I'm going to do this just like you say. I know it's not going to work. I'm getting out of here. So I looked around. There was a man. His name was Neil. I went up to him. He had a normal body, you know, a little shorter than I was. I can manipulate people like that. And I said, you want to show me what this is about? And he said, you're looking for a sponsor? I said, well, yes. I mean, I don't really know how to get started with this. And we worked out that I'd call him once a day in the morning between 7.30, 7.45. And he, he gave me some tough love. He said, Ken, you're going to tell me what you're going to eat three times that day. You're going to have nothing in between. And remember, if you put it in your mouth, put it in my ear. So I was going to do this perfect, like I try to do everything. But I find out there, there's nobody in this world who's perfect. I never was. I think perfect people are, uh, there's a flaw. There's a flaw there being perfect. So I called them. I'd call my food in. At those days, the meeting was a little different. You'd work 21 days with a sponsor. You'd make a commitment. I'm going to do this for 21 days no matter what. At the end of 21 days, you could fire your sponsor. The sponsor could fire you. I did it for 21 days. It took about 15, 16 pounds. I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my gosh, you know, I don't need him and I don't need the meetings and I don't need this big book that asked me to buy 565 pages without pictures. I don't need any of this. I'll just write down in the morning what I'm going to eat and then I'm going to uh, do the day. I put back all 15, 16 pounds. I started in abstinence and lost in abstinence on and off from May to June, July, August, September, October, November. I could never get it past two or three days. I wanted to celebrate with food. I didn't understand. I was an addict. When it comes to food, I was an addict. And an addict for me is someone who tries to solve their problem by reaching for something physical instead of something spiritual or emotional. And we reach for each other in here because we understand our language. People out there would understand what we're talking about. That's okay. I have a place to go where I understand you and you understand me, and that's wonderful. So I started again. I started over again and over again for months. In November, I reached the bottom. I didn't want to reach again. I still don't want to reach that bottom. It's very simple. Normal people don't understand what I'm about to say. There were people in my home for Thanksgiving. I didn't want to be there. So for that reason, I ate in the preparation of the food. I ate the meal at the table. I helped to clean up. I love to clean up. You can get a lot of food that way en route to the kitchen. I got up in the middle of the night and ate. 
and I figure this is where I'm going to be thrown out of Overeaters Anonymous. I called my sponsor on Saturday morning. I told him I just ate for two days, and I was waiting for him to say get lost. That would be okay. And he said, Ken, what are you going to do today? And he's right. It, like, woke me up. This is the only day we have, you know. It's the only real day in our lives that past is dead. The future would never get here. Tomorrow, we'll have a future called Monday. <laughs> so it never gets here. So I told him what I was going to do. He said, fine, if you run into a problem, give me a call. And I started an abstinence, and I have an abstinence today. It has changed over the years, but there are three things in my abstinence that have not changed. I don't eat red meat. I don't eat bread. I don't eat refined sugar. I'm sure I'm getting sugar somehow. It's in everything that's made everywhere. But I don't eat those three things. I eat everything else as long as I don't eat it with my hands. I have to have a spoon or a fork to eat. That keeps me sane because I used to eat out of bags with my hand. This is the, my right hand is the, the thing that tried to kill me. And uh, I keep it away from my face. That's the easiest form of abstinence. Keep your hands away from your face. <laughs> it's so simple. And it's so difficult. Everything that's simple and difficult works. That's what I found in this program. So I started in abstinence. My weight started coming down. I'm passing around the picture, I think. Show you what happened to me. And I had to go to meetings, and I enjoyed, I started enjoying going to meetings because I heard different people speak. And then eventually my sponsor said, Ken, you know, you have to do more than go to meetings. You have to work these steps. There's 12 steps in this program. It's a 12-step program. That's where the recovery comes from that you can live with on a daily basis. I said, I see them. They're in the office. They're up on the wall. He said, that's not enough. You have to do them. I said, oh, my gosh, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? He says, well, you take the first step. Stand up at a meeting and admit you're a compulsive overeater. It's a mandatory step. The others are highly suggested, but that's a mandatory step. So I went to a meeting. I remember my hands were uh, sweating. My mouth was dry. I had to stand up. It was a big room with a lot of people. And I said, my name is Ken. I'm a compulsive overeater. I eat when I'm angry, I eat when I'm sad, I eat when I'm depressed, I eat when I'm alone, I eat when I'm horny, and one other time, when I'm awake. <laughs> and it's true, I always carried food somewhere within reach. And that was the first step, and I had to discuss my red light foods with my sponsor. And he said, when you're ready, we'll go to step two. Read it first, then tell me. I try to put it off and put it off, but again, my, my head said, if I can do this and find out it won't work, I can be out of here. No more meetings, no more of this running around to different places, no more with the phone calls. And so I read step two, and I, I said to uh, my sponsor, if something does work in my life that'll get the weight off, that trained physicians couldn't do, and that diets couldn't do, and that shots and pills and therapists couldn't do, then it must be my power. I still believe that today. He said, fine, you're ready for step three. I was happy for that because this is what was going to get me out of program. Step three is admitting there's a power greater than myself. The ultimate faith is realizing I'm not God. I didn't know it then. I thought I was in charge of everything in my life. And I read about it in the big book, and then we sat down, and I said, okay, now tell me, how am I supposed to find God? 
And I figured he, he couldn't explain that and I'd be gone. And he said, Ken, don't concentrate on finding God. Your job is to look for God. You've got to look for God when you go to a meeting. You look for God when someone else is speaking and you understand what they're saying. You look for God when your phone rings and someone wants to talk and all you have to do is listen. Or when something's running around in your head like a dog chasing a tail and you call up someone and all they do is listen. You look for God when you open up that 565-page book with no pictures and pick a page to read. And if you can't decide on one, you'll call someone and say, I'm not feeling this or I'm feeling that. Where should I go? And they suggest the page and I read the page. I never did any of these things before and I never lost weight, but I tried. So this is how we look for God. I'm still looking and I, still, I find God on a daily basis by taking the proper action. And the proper action is, don't listen to what's going on between my ears. I still have something that's up there that talks to me, and I have to laugh at it. And sometimes it really gets loud, and my wife doesn't even understand it. I'll go in the bathroom, close the door, and I'll look in the mirror, and I'll say, shut up. You know, just shut up. I can't stand it anymore. And then I can smile, because I know I'm not going to listen to that damn thing. But I carry it out of the bathroom also. It's attached to my neck. So, this is what I do. I work the steps. I had to give away an inventory. I didn't enjoy that at all. I didn't want to talk to my sponsor about it. It was a lot of personal stuff. So, I went to a meeting way in the back of the valley. It was a temple of Ramad Zion in Granada Hills somewhere. And I, I was looking for an alien, someone I can read my inventory to. And then he'd get in his spaceship and go back to another planet. But... And he said, what are, what are you uh, looking to do? I said, I have this stuff I'm supposed to read. He said, oh, an inventory. He said, I have an office a, blo a block away. Let's go down there. And we went down there. And he said, just start at the top and let me know when you're finished. And I started on several pages. I started. And when I finished, I was waiting for the recrimination and the suggestions and the uh, feedback. And he said, great. And he took it. In those days, offices had ashtrays. He took it and he lit it in an ashtray and he burned it, stirred it up and tossed it out. And he said, you know, it's not too late. You want to get some coffee? I couldn't believe it. I had such a relief. Such a relief of not carrying this around with me anymore. And I was reminded there's another step after that. I couldn't get over it. When does it end? He says, it never ends. You're going to work the steps the rest of your life. And he's right. The first time we just become acquainted on how to work the steps. And six and seven, which has to do with my character defects, I'll tell you, I still have character defects. My mouth is this far away from shooting back at someone else when they talk to me and I don't like what they say. And I have to bite my tongue. And remember, I don't want to make an amends to this idiot. And so I'll stop talking. Or I'll leave the room or, or walk away from the person because I can't get involved with certain people because they just are overbearing to me. They're nice people. There's nothing wrong with them, but not for me. So I, I try not to practice my defects of character and I had to do that by first listing all of them. That was a very long page. And then finding out how to have them lifted, which is step seven. The making amends which is eight and nine, is also something I don't like doing. 
I used to think uh, make amends means you line up everyone in your life and you say you're sorry to everyone. That's not the way you make amends. You say you're sorry in certain places at certain times. You act differently at different times. You work with others and for others at different times. There are all kinds of different ways to make amends. And today I remember if I don't screw up, I don't have to make an amend. I don't enjoy making amends. So I try very hard not to screw up. But there's still some times when I get, my wife and I get into something and I'll say, Susan, forget it. I didn't mean what I'm talking about. I'm crazy. And she'll smile because she knows I am. <laughs> and, and we stop at that point and go no farther. So I live in the remaining steps of this program. I still have things that run around in my head. The people I sponsor can get a sheet from me called the 10th step. It's a one-page sheet. If you fill out the page very simply with yeses and nos and a little description, you've taken a 10th step and it shows you how to do it. Do a 10th step. You can also find it in any big book on page 86. That's where a 10th step is shown. So uh, I live in 11 and 12. I learned how to pray and how to meditate. Meditating is shutting Ken up, sitting in one place, and thinking about what I do before I do it. Because if I act very quickly at times, I'm making the wrong decision. And I don't want to screw up again. And praying is very easy. Children know how to pray. They ask for something. That means they're praying they get it. That's what prayer is. We ask. I ask for peace of mind. I ask for a better life today. I ask for things I never used to ask for. My weight is now 170, 175. That's my range. It's a miracle. It's truly a miracle. I don't understand how I had a number like that, which I passed probably in high school going up. And it took me another 30 years to come back down. So I live with this weight. I still get on a scale. I sponsor people. We all get on a scale the first of the month just to look at how we're doing. It's a weather report. We look down between our toes, we see the number, we share it with each other, and then we say goodbye, we'll do it again next month, but it lets us know what we're doing. Daily doesn't work for me. If I got on the scale every day, I get on every hour. So, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I don't want to get undressed every hour. Oops, excuse me. So this is who I am today. This is what I do. I show up at meetings. I hurt my knee about a week ago. I fell on it. And I'm living with it. I'm getting better through it. And at one point, I would have already been in the uh, Rochester Clinic trying to find out what to do about it. But I'm being uh, at peace with it. I just have to move slowly. I move slowly in all areas of my life. I still read the big book. I'm grateful that there are people that are just getting started, some of whom I sponsor, that ask me for pages in the big book because when I recommend the page, I have to read it. So after they read it, if they want to talk about it, I know what they're talking about. I can't memorize 565 pages, so I have to go back and read that page, and I do it. And then we talk about whatever he or she wants to know. I, I sponsor 10 people in Ten men and one woman. We're all doing well. They all have a lot of weight off. They all have a lot of sanity. It's a miracle. That's what this is. My doctor, I still go to a doctor who knew me when, when I moved out here, I started with him. 
And he doesn't understand it. He said, you still go to that place? I said, yeah, I still go to that place. He said, what do you do there? I said, well, I either shut up and listen or I talk, one or the other. I talk to him that way because he's never going to ask deeply about what this is. But he knows about Alcoholics Anonymous. He knows the anonymous program. I say, that's what this is. It's an anonymous program. But it's geared to uh, overeaters, not alcoholics. It works for everything. Absolutely everything. So... I'm here today because I want to maintain something I started yesterday morning. Getting through a good day. This is the only day we have. You know, prove to me we have tomorrow. You can't until it gets here. So, I'm going to do the best I can today. I had lunch with my wife. We go food shopping. I'm going to go home, put an ice pack on my knee, and smile about life. This is who I am today. And tomorrow I'll show up somewhere else. And look forward to a same day. So I'd like to leave you with, uh, I have favorite adages that I use, that I picked up from people in program, that are not in program, probably knew nothing about program, but they said some words that were so valuable to me and have a meaning in the, these rooms. And I'll, one of my all-time favorites is the one by uh, a French writer, Colette, who said this in the 1950s. She was well up in her 80s at the time. And she said, I had a wonderful life. I wish I knew it sooner. Thank you very much for being here. All right, then this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. If being recorded, please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Who would like to start with question? Yes, Len. After 36 years, how do you keep your program fresh? How do you stay How do I stay interested in program after 36 years? Because I come to admit that 36 years don't mean anything. I'm living today. I have to get through today. I could screw up today, and then the 36 years don't, really don't mean a thing. So I have to learn to get through Saturday. I also have to learn to do that by being in contact with others in program some of which are sponsor, others who call me. I'll tell you, I get about the 12 calls, 13 calls a day, or messages, a lot of people. And they hear from me, too. I pick up the phone and call people. Since I got on involved with this telephone meeting, I now have friends from different states. It's amazing. I don't even know what they look like, or, but I know who they are because they share the same thing that I have. So I use the telephone. I have a list in my pocket of about the 30, 40 numbers. And they're all available, either their machine or their voice. And that's how I stay current. I live in the day. How long did it take me to find an abstinence? To lose my weight. All right, how long did it take in the beginning? Well, in the first three weeks, I lost 15, 16 pounds, and I put it all back. I was a yo-yo for six months. Four months, May through November. I lost weight, I put it back. I lost weight, I put it back. 
because I ate and I stopped eating and I started an abstinence and stopped an abstinence. You see, I wasn't ready to abstain on a daily basis because there wasn't enough pain in my life. This has to do with pain. When you want to give up the pain in your life, you'll get through the rest of the day without the pain. Meaning shutting certain people out of your life, looking for people who are good for you, doing some readings you never would have thought of reading, committing to food and having the food. And when I was finished, sometimes I'd bookend the meal by calling someone and saying, I'm about to start lunch, I'm having this, this, and this. And then when I'm done, I'm going to call you back. I had to do that. Otherwise, it couldn't end. My problem wasn't eating. It was stopping. So, this is how I started losing weight. When I started an abstinence, giving up the three items I pointed out, and eating three times a day with beverages in between. A lot of beverages. I have a lot of tea. I'm not a coffee drinker. Tea, water, whatever. As much as I can get sometimes. But the weight in the first six months came down 25, 30 pounds. By the end of a year, I was down 100 pounds. Amazing. I, I was in awe. And when your body starts changing like that, you're afraid to go back to the old way because you know what can happen. I know if I took it off, I could put it back. So the weight really, a large bulk of it came off in the first year. And since then, I've taken off somewhere between another 20, 25 pounds. I don't know how, because I'm living the same way. But that's God's will, not mine. So I think when you have enough pain in your life, you're going, to do, you're going to work with food properly and work with another person properly. And that's where the weight comes off. Michael. Thanks, you mentioned step seven. And I've, it says somewhere that we don't always have to be bludgeoned and beaten into humility. But do you find you still have to be bludgeoned and beaten before you give a character defect to God? I still have to feel outlandish amounts of pain before I give up a character defect. Step seven. Uh, I have a normal fear today. I, I really don't want to go back to who I was because I was a loner. I lived by myself. I was with other people. I had a family. I had children. But I was a loner. I did things on my own, alone. I don't want to do that anymore. If I start to get involved with a de an old defect, I know I'm going to pay the price. I'll pay the same price I paid then. I was sorry. I'm sorry it happened, but I wouldn't tell anyone else. I wouldn't ask them for an amend making amends, I'd have to live with it. If certain things I can't live with anymore. I can't live with emotional pain. It drives me crazy. There's pain we live with on a daily basis because we're human. You know, if I was in Pinocchio land living a, a happy, joyous life with candy bars every single day, that's not life. So I have to deal with the pain when it arises. And that's what I do. And sometimes I have to call someone else and say, let me tell you what happened. What am I supposed to do? Because I can't get the answer myself. Or maybe I don't want to face the answer myself. So I'll call someone and ask them. But I have to deal with it because if I carry pain, no one else will know except me. And I can't stand it. Against the wall. When you say refined sugar, are you saying like desserts? Is that what you're Anything made with white sugar, uh, refined sugar. Now, you know, I eat fruit. Fruit has a lot of sugar. That's called fructose. I call that natural sugar. But, uh, yeah, desserts with, uh, I mean, cakes, candies, pies, things like that, I, I don't eat them. I pass on them. And uh, we celebrate a lot of birthdays and holidays at my son's home. 
And he's a normal person. He's 170 pounds his whole adult life. I don't know how he does it. Uh, on the other hand, my daughter's 200 pounds. I don't know how she can live with that, but that's, that's the difference. I go to my son's home. We'll celebrate. He always has fruit for me. I don't get into the cake. And uh, I, I thank him. I used to thank him profusely. Now he, we just smile at each other because he knows this is what his father gets. He gets fruit. Everyone else gets the cake. Yes. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure I heard you correctly, but what I did hear was that you've eliminated some people from your life who you just had a hard time dealing with. Um, there have to still be people in your life who you have not eliminated who you have a hard time dealing with. How do you work the, what I call the Al-Anon aspects of this program? Well, I don't eliminate them by just saying, you're out of my life forever. There are a lot of relatives back in the East that I'm not in contact with that much. We'll uh, write cards at the end of the year, or once a year we'll talk to each other, but I'm not part of their lives. I don't want them part of mine, because they always told me what to do. No matter what I was doing, I was doing it wrong. They were going to tell me how to do it right. I have... Uh, one man that moved out here with me from New Jersey, uh, he moved out a year before I did. And uh, he's a nice man. He can live a life that I can't live. He can go to parties. He can celebrate with drinking and eating. And he looks totally normal. And he could drive me crazy. So I don't have him in my life on a daily basis. But we, uh, we call each other on our birthdays because we've known each other for so many years. And I say, how are you doing, Shelley? And uh, he says, how are you doing, Ken? And we talk, but there's no other closeness. Most of my friends, I'd say uh, over 90% of my friends are in this program. First of all, I get my real joy out of listening to others. I'm sick and tired of hearing my own story. I only have one. That's the one I just told. But... When I go, I want to hear how other people do it. I want to know how, what moves you to open the big book. It's not the most joyous story to read, you know, but it gives us all our answers. And so I want to hear someone explain how their life has changed. Because if they could do it, I could do it the rest of today. And this is what I do when I go to a meeting. I go to listen. That's the most important part of this program is listening. Shutting up what's going on up here between the ears and listening. So I'm interested by going to hear people I haven't heard before or hearing people I have heard and knowing they're still having a good life. It's possible. If it's possible for them, there's a good chance for me. What about that huge character defect? Defect. How did I get past the defect of, of someone telling me how to do something? I just don't listen. If it's not good for me, I thank them with a smile. I'll say, you know what, if that works for you, good for you. You know, I'm not going to get into what I'm going to do. I'm not going to tell. I don't want to escalate an argument. I lose all arguments. So all I'll do is say, thank you. You know, that sounds good. Works for you? Great. I let it drop. I don't get involved with what's not good for me. Because it'll end up hurting me. It won't hurt them. They'll go away. They'll be happy. they say, hey, I saw Ken today. And I'll, I'll go back home and say, I saw a damn so-and-so today. They drove me nuts. I can't let them do it. I think the question is, how do you get involved with what is going to 
Before I get involved, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning and my head says, Ken, you know what? It's Tuesday and you got all this stuff going on. And I say, thank you. And I pick up four today and read it. I've read four today for over 35 years. When I start a page in four today, I already know what's on that page. I read it so many times. I read four today. Sometimes I read, later in the day, Voices of Recovery. I want to hear affirmations from people that live the life as I have. So I lean on this program very heavily. It's not just buying a ticket to the movie and walking out and saying I've seen the show. I want to be part of the show because I can't do it alone. I've always said to people, if you could do this alone, show me how. And then I'll be able to go and do it alone. Nobody has ever showed me how. Okay. What else? Yes. Relationships have changed dramatically. As I said, there are some people that are just no longer in my life anymore. The question was, how have my relationships changed since I've had abstinence in this program? My relationships have opened up immensely with my children. I'm more interested. Thank God they were still very young when I started this program. And, uh, I mean, I had a, uh, a son in college and a uh, daughter in high school, and I was crazy. And now we have a close relationship, very close. Um, there, I have friends who travel through. I have a daughter who lives in Tucson. I really would like her to get hold of this program. I have friends who travel through there occasionally. I offer them her number. They call her and say hi, talk to her. And then my daughter will call me and say, you know what, I got a call from so-and-so. And they told me what they're going to eat tonight. I said, yes. You know why? Because it was good for them. I try to be an example to her, to show her, because she knows what I was, and she sees who I am. So, this is what I do with people. I learn from them. I, want to, I don't ever want to stop learning. When I know it all, I'll be back where I started. Yes? Someone is brand new, and they're struggling. It may be their first day of abstinence. What can I suggest? Go to another meeting before the sun sets. Take numbers off the telephone sheet and call someone and say, how's your day going today? I was at that 9 o'clock meeting. I saw your name on a list. I want to call to say hello. Do that two or three times with two or three phone numbers. Go to another meeting. Tell someone else what you're going to do tomorrow as far as food is concerned. Look for someone you can identify with. The best kind of a sponsor is someone you could talk to that you're comfortable talking to. If you could talk to someone and you could listen to what they say, you have a good relationship. And if you don't want a sponsor, maybe you're not ready for this. If you don't want to make calls, maybe you're not ready. Maybe you want to do some more research. Maybe you want to reach into that bag one more time and see if there's recovery in a bag of food. And I can't do that. It scares me. So if you're itchy and on edge today, Look forward to the fact that in 10 hours, a day will be over. And between now and 10 hours, you got the telephone, you got the big book, you got the 12 and 12, you have meetings to go to, you have tools. There are nine of them. One is, uh, they don't use the word exercise, they call it getting into action. Get out of the house, walk around the block four times. Nobody will ever remember you doing it. But after four times, you'll say, what the hell am I doing? You know what you're doing? You're taking care of yourself. 
That's what you're doing. So get into action. That's all. Get into action. Yes? You have to say it a little louder, please. How open am I with people letting them know that I'm in this program outside of my family? I don't talk about it with people unless someone is looking for an answer. Or someone says, Ken, what happened to you? You got a doctor? What happened? That happened early on years ago when they saw me make the change. And they said, what happened? I said, well, I have a program. They have to be interested. If they're not interested, I can't sell this. If they really want to know, I'll say, look, I have a list of meetings in my car. I always carry a 12-stepper and a 5th tradition. And I'll say, you go to a meeting. You keep your mouth shut and listen. See what happens. Your life will change. But again, if someone's not ready, I don't sell this. You can't sell it. That it? Yes, Michael. So, you said people that tell you what to do in your life, you try to, you know, you don't hang out with them. This that my wife and my teenage daughter always are telling me what to do. <laughs> so, right. What do I do with people that tell me what to do, even very close people like my children or my wife? My wife still gives me suggestions. I'll be driving on the freeway. She tells me you want to move over the next lane. What for? So, this used to escalate an argument. I would get into the point of, you be the passenger, and I'm the driver. I don't do that anymore. I say, thank you. And if I don't move over, I know I'm going to hear it again. And I have to laugh at myself, because my wife cannot change certain things. She can't change the way she is. She, she's a wonderful, was a wonderful mother. That's why I've got two great kids. But don't mother me. Don't tell me what to do. And she will sometimes. She knows my program. And yet she'll be eating something. We'll be in a restaurant or somewhere. She'll say, I know you don't eat this, but you have to taste it. It's so good. I'll say, it looks good. Thank you. I said, later, later. I'll make a joke of it. Of course, she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. It's not her fault. It's her condition. Like... My being a compulsive reader is not my fault. It's my condition. So I can listen and hear a lot of things from my wife that could drive me up a wall. And I, I can say out loud with a smile, not again. You know? And she'll say, what? And I'll say, not again. I don't want to get into it. I don't want to get it. And I'll try to change the subject. You know, My kids have never given me orders. I think they were afraid of me when I was 300 pounds. Our closeness today is a lot different. But my wife still makes suggestions I don't want to hear. And I can say, thank you, Susan. <laughs> or joke about it. I have to joke about it. Or it won't go away. And change lanes. And change lanes. 